Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering an 11-month MBA program featuring paid internships and a study abroad program. Books included. More at tamusa.edu slash MBA. On June 7, 1995, Martha Narcunas sat down with 86-year-old Dorothy Robinson to record her oral history. It also happened to be the birthday of Dorothy's husband, Frank. Incidentally, today is his birthday. He would be he would be 93 if he were living. But Frank J. Robinson's life was cut short. The official cause, suicide. But Dorothy, till her dying day in 2005, never believed that. She would insist he was murdered over his voting rights activities in East Texas. He, he definitely made a contribution. In fact, he made the supreme contribution because Frank Robinson was shot to death in that garage. Dorothy explained that it was Frank who awakened her to get busy with the struggle for civil rights in East Texas. She said Frank had that effect on many people, and that's what made him a dangerous man. If Frank had been less aggressive, less assertive, he might be here now in his 90 years. But no, Frank was definitely the moving spirit. Frank was the moving spirit in Palestine. He was the moving, one of the moving spirits in East Texas. And, and they got the right man, all right. They realized if they killed Frank Robinson, they'd kill a lot of the movement. And that's what they did, and that's what they succeeded in doing. Frank J. Robinson died on October 13, 1976, 19 years before this interview, and there are still unresolved, haunting questions about Frank's death. Then and now, there remain conflicting physical evidence and some eyewitness accounts that cast serious doubt on the suicide story. And this raises suspicion that there was a cover-up in the East Texas city of Palestine that continues today. From Texas Public Radio, this is The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson, Episode 5, Dorothy's Story. I'm David Martin Davies. It was a pure case of homicide. The chief of police told my pastor it was a clear case of homicide. Within a week, it had turned to suicide. There's a picture of a cat licking the inside of his skull when he's there on the garage floor. I would generally say that something took the top of his head off. He was shot four times. How you gonna commit suicide if you just have four times? African-American gentleman that was murdered out by the, one of the local schools. So uh, he was murdered, yeah. No one in the black community of Palestine ever thought it was anything other than a Klan assassination. That was Klan territory out there. It just, that was just life out there in that part of the world. In this podcast, I'm investigating the death of Frank J. Robinson. I've been going over the physical evidence and testimony of witnesses, and there's more of that to come. But I want to use this episode to do something different. Let's widen the lens. Let's increase the depth of field about the Robinsons growing up and living in East Texas, the poverty and racial discrimination that challenged them, how they triumphed, but also the toll that the struggle took. Let's find out more about the character of the man that is Frank J. Robinson, and you can judge for yourself. Do you think that he is the kind of man who would take his own life? Now, there's no way to know that for sure, and there's no better person to tell us about Frank than his wife, Dorothy. I tell you, he was one of the finest people I ever knew. He was caring, he was sensitive, he was humorous, 
He was industrious, he was creative, and he was a humanitarian. And uh, leadership ability out of this world. Almost like a deity, uh, had some supernatural power. I've never seen him fail to get a group. He could bring about cohesiveness in groups. And it, it, it would last. As long as he was there, it would last. Now, when he was gone, it was gone, much of it. He sounds very charismatic. That's the word. That is, that is the word. An interesting thing. But Dorothy was more than just Frank's wife. She was an accomplished educator and celebrated public servant. She was a daughter of East Texas, a child of sharecroppers, and the granddaughter of formerly enslaved Americans. All of this, all of this is always on the table. William Faulkner famously wrote that in the American South, the past is never dead, it's not even past. In this episode, there will be the use of the N-word, also descriptions of life and sexual assault during American enslavement. Also, there are examples of the anti-black injustice of Jim Crow, and this will be disturbing. I spent the whole day with her, uh, three hours in the morning, and then we went out for lunch, and three hours in the afternoon. So we spent a lot of time together, and she was great. She didn't know me, and she sat with me the whole day. She was in her 80s at the time, and she just told story after story and explained things and answered questions. I, I liked her enormously. I spoke to Martha Nakunis about her interview with Dorothy, which happened about 30 years ago. And actually, there are two oral history interviews with Dorothy that I'll be dipping into. The Nakunis interview was recorded for the UTSA Institute of Texan Cultures, and a longer one was conducted by Sherry Wolf, which I located at the UT Briscoe Center for American History. And I'm going to be using both of these in this episode. Martha Nakunis said she interviewed Dorothy in her home in Palestine, the same White House that she shared with Frank and where he died. Once I'd packed up and I was about to go out, she said, do you know why I live in a White House? I said, no. And she said, I could have a better house than this, but I always uh, thought about when the plantation owners lived in the White House on a hill. And I was determined that I would have a white house on a hill one day. So that's why I live in this house. I was so struck by that, the imagery of the plantation owner on a slight rise, a a small hill in a white house overseeing the plantation. And she had decided that she and her husband would live in what was the equivalent of the master's house and they would be in the house on the hill, the White House. It was a really powerful image. In the interviews, Dorothy explained that Frank had taken a rocky and indirect path to earn his education, and I think this story perfectly illustrates Frank's steadfast determination, his strength of will, and his stubborn nature to survive. He was born in Smith County in a rural community about 13 miles from Tyler. when I met Frank, he told me he was from Tyler. And uh, he went home that summer, and his father grew delicious peaches. He sent me a bushel of peaches. 
and they were sent from White House, Texas. And uh, I got a letter from him that was mailed in Bullard. And I wondered, where in the world does this man live? And then when I got the Purview catalog, it said Frank James Robinson, Route 1, Box 100, Flint, Texas. And then I said, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Mud Creek. And so really, it was a rural community called Antioch Community, uh, about 15 miles out of Tyler, Texas. He, he, his family was very poor, as was mine. He lost his mother when he was about 10 or 12. And he stayed out of school from the time his mother passed until he was about uh, 19. And he said he was in, in uh, Tyler one day selling coal. Uh, they would burn wood and take the coal and sell it. And ladies would use it, laundries, laundry women would use it to heat their iron. And he said uh, he heard such joyful laughter up on the hill. And he wondered what everybody was so happy about. And he asked the lady who was buying his coal, what's happening up there? I hear so much, so many people laughing. She said, there's a college up there. And he was 17, about 15 miles from Tyler, but he did not know that there was a college in Tyler for Negroes. There were really two colleges, Texas College and Butler College. So he decided he wanted to go to Texas College, but he was just in the seventh grade. So he went, to went up to Texas College to enroll, and uh, he was told, say, yes, we have high school classes here. Even though it's a college, we, we'll take you in the same. So he went there 19 and 23 in the seventh grade. And I think he worked, milk, he milked the cows and worked the garden or something. And the principal, the head person at Texas College, was W.R. Banks from Georgia, who left there and went to Prairie View. And he was principal. Prairie View didn't have a president. The head person was called a principal. So Principal Banks went to Prairie View. And, uh, but Mrs. Banks took a special interest in Frank, and she tutored him one-to-one. -one. And when Mr. Banks went to Prairie View, Frank followed Mr. Banks to Prairie View and took examination for college freshmen and passed. So he went to Texas College in the seventh grade in 1923, and in 31 he graduated from Prairie View with a bachelor's degree. Prairie View A&M University is a historically black land-grant university founded in 1876. It's the second oldest public institution of higher learning in Texas, and it was there that Frank met Dorothy Reedus and their love story began. I went to Prairie View in the summer of 1927, and I was waiting tables trying to help pay my way through school because my parents were extremely poor. My parents were sharecroppers. And about two days after I got there, I met a young man who was also working his way through school as a dishwasher. And uh, that was the man I married. Uh, before the summer was gone, we, we had our first date on the 4th of July at a watermelon feast. And he swears if, I had, if he hadn't given me some watermelon, I never would have said hello to him. But anyway, that was the beginning of our relationship. And we were married uh, 46 years, two months, and 20 days. Was there something special that impressed I was, you about I was him? about to say, uh, the thing that impressed me about him was he was 24 years old and had not even started his freshman work. 
And in 1931, he graduated from Prairie View with a BS degree in agriculture. So I was impressed that here's a man at this age is willing to make whatever sacrifices were necessary to get a college education. And uh, he was seeing himself through school. His father had uh, a great, a nice, large farm, but it was just during the Depression. But there was not a lot of money. And his father had so many other children. And he was the oldest of several kids. So he had to just get out and take care of himself and go to school. And that impressed me, the fact that he was willing to uh, do whatever it took to achieve a worthwhile goal. He had such a, so much difficulty, I suppose, in even getting through school. He had a great sympathy for underprivileged people. And that was just a part of his philosophy in life. Uh, even before there was such a thing as a civil rights movement, he was always concerning himself with something that he thought would help people. And you've often heard the expression about taking your shirt off your back and giving it away. Well, Frank Robinson didn't only take his shirt off his back. I have actually seen him get out of his trousers and give them away. And one day I reprimanded him. He said, well, it was a two-piece suit. I still got another pair of pants. <laughs> so then when the civil rights movement uh, began to take, uh, move, you know, the movement started, uh, he immediately became deeply interested in it. We got married in a car sitting under a tree on a hot summer afternoon on a dirt road under a tree out from Hempstead, Texas. He had just finished his junior work, and I was just entering sophomore. Why in a car? We slipped off the campus, and the it was summer school, and there was a minister there who was also a school principal. And he knew Frank, and Frank, somehow I guess Frank got, I don't know who brought it up, but anyway, he picked us up in the car after lunch. The minister did. Yeah, Frank said, you be under that cedar tree, we're going to pick you up right after lunch. See, I wasn't supposed to leave the campus. And I was sitting under the cedar tree, and here comes Reverend Barlow and Frank with this little one-seated, and Frank had already picked up the lights, and we got nailed it to Hempstead. He had applied for the lights, he had to go in and pick them up. And the Reverend said, well, where are you going to get married? You're going to get married at Dakota House or in some private home? And I said, oh, just drive out here side of the road somewhere. And you, that's you said I said it, and that's exactly what he did. Frank ran in and picked up the license. The license cost her $2.50, and he gave uh, the lady that served him $5, and he was so excited he forgot about his change. He came out, and the Reverend Barlow drove out on a little dirt road, and I've forgotten the script she read. But at 3.20... I said, what time is it? And Frank said, it's 3.20, Mrs. Robinson. That was the first time I was ever called Mrs. Robinson. And, uh, and Frank said, oh, Lord, I left my change. <laughs> and then the minister drove back, and he went into the courthouse. Frank said he never had to ask for the change. The lady made him laughing, say, here's your change. We went back to the campus, and uh, Frank said, well, dear, we are married, and I've got $12. And I had an English exam at 6 o'clock that afternoon. I always made A. That day I made B. So that gives you some idea of how we sort of worked together all, all along. Uh, whatever I was doing, he was a part of it. Whatever he was doing, I was a part of it. And if I get any credit at all for being active in the civil rights movement, I was a sort of understudy or a right arm or a support or something for my husband. Well, I told the preacher when he read our ceremony, don't tell me to obey Frank because I may not obey him, and I'm not going to sit up here and swear that I'm going to do it. 
So he left it out. You know, he used to say, do this and do this and obey. Yeah, love, honor, and obey. Yeah, well, I didn't promise. I promised to love and honor. I did not promise to obey. And I'd tell Frank, I didn't promise to obey you. And he said, no, and you're not married. He just stopped out there under a tree. And, <laughs> and we'd just have a big laugh on it and go. I could have married a thousand times. I would not have had a more congenial, a more kind, a more understanding, and a more appreciative husband than Frank Robinson. Let's take a break. And when we come back, Dorothy talks about how she lived with Jim Crow and the stories of her family during slavery. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, now offering multiple graduate programs like the 11-month MBA, the fully online Master of Science in Criminology and Criminal Justice, and many more. Learn more at becomeajaguar.com. As she was interviewing Dorothy Robinson, oral historian Martha Nakunis said she was witnessing the signs of deep emotional trauma from what happened to her husband, Frank, but also from the decades of living under systemic racism. And again, also from Dorothy telling the stories of her own family members being enslaved. I, I now, when I teach the grad seminars in oral history, we look at many different areas associated with stories and memory, memory and oral history and landscape. But one of the big topics is oral history and trauma and listening to stories of tra traumatized people or people who have been through really difficult life experiences. So one of the things that I realize is when people don't talk about something but talk around it or when someone's talking about a really difficult or a set of difficult experiences in the past, they might speak about it in a really flat tone. And people mistake that for them not being emotionally involved in it, but that's not what it means at all. It's a way to process that very painful period from the past and tell it almost as though it's matter of fact. And do you get angry with God? Did you, for example, the way your husband died? No, I didn't. And, and strangely enough, people have asked me a many times if I could pronounce a sentence on the person that killed him. What would I do? And I said, I've never thought about it. I wouldn't do anything. Uh, I, I, I don't know any punishment that I would I would desire. I would like I would like the, the truth to come out publicly. I would like that. But so far as how, what I want him electrocuted or what, I never have even thought about it. Uh, now, uh, a white friend asked me one day, why aren't you bitter? He said, it looked like you'd be bitter. And I said, well, I come nearer being bitter than angry. I said, but this is what I know. If I were white, I would not be widowed as I, in the manner in which I was. Because Frank was killed fighting for what was constitutionally his. He shouldn't have had to pay that price to get the joys of being an American citizen. And if I were white, he wouldn't have had to do that. So I might have been a widow, but I wouldn't have been widowed under these circumstances. So I, I, I face that, I, I, I don't get angry about it. It's just a fact that, that I had to live with. And you weren't angry at it even at the time? No, I guess I was too hurt to be angry. I wasn't, uh, no, I wasn't, if I know what anger was, I wasn't angry. I was more, well, at first I, I was kind of look like I had a shield 
uh, and I, I give God credit for that, that I wasn't, uh, I was not as sensitive really to what was going on. Something that some scholars talk about is weathering. It's just the wearing down of systemic racism and the pain that that systemic racism causes to individual, to families and to individual people. And yet it's a kind of ability to exist through that pain, but also a wisdom in seeing it, seeing what, uh, how you can how you can exist through it, but also where you can uh, make significant changes, where you can speak up about it, and and where you can't. Later in the interview, she told about when her uh, father's mother was sold as a young girl. She was enslaved, and she never saw her brother or her mother ever again. And again, she just told that story very matter-of-factly. But we're talking about the sale of an eight-year-old girl. And I think about it now, it must have been terribly embarrassing to my father, as intelligent as he was, to be a sharecropper. And you've got to go and get somebody to stand for the groceries that you feed your family. And then at the end of the year when the crop comes in, the landlord gets his half and I get my half. Now that must have been awfully grueling to my daddy. But if so, he never showed it, because that was his lot. My father was born 15 years after freedom was declared. And uh, when he got, uh, and, and then the, he lost the father when he was eight, and a widowed mother had to rear him, and uh, they were buying a little farm. That was always a lack in his life. And I think that was one reason why he was so determined that his kids would get an education because he wanted it so badly and was denied the, the opportunity. Was it to he get... who told you this family stories that you yes, about? Yes, yes, yes. That was his name, Caleb Reedus. And it goes back to his mother and his father. They were both born slaves. Uh, his mother was born a slave in Norfolk, Virginia. And when she was eight years old, when her master's daughter got married, they gave her to the daughter as a part of her dowry. And then the daughter and her husband was stuck, uh, experiencing some uh, financial reverses. Uh, they sold her when she was eight years old, I think, for $600. And her mother, it seemed that this young married couple and the, the, the senior couple was all still in the same household and the slaves were still there. But when she got ready to, but before, one day her mother called her to the door when an Irish physician, Dr. Bright, was driving away from the house in a, a handsome buggy drawn by two matching horses. And her mother told her, you see that man, that is your father. And don't forget that he's one of the best doctors in all Norfolk. Well, it so happened that Dr. my grandmother's owners were groomsteads, and Dr. Bright was a friend of the groomsteads. And he'd come to visit the groomstead and went to bed with the slave, uh, slave woman. And my grandmother was the product of that association. So when she was sold at the age of eight, her, grand, her mother told her to come and kiss your little brother goodbye. She went to, I don't know whether the little brother was Dr. Bright's uh, child or not. But anyway, she kissed the brother goodbye and she never saw her mother or her uh, uh, brother, not her mother anymore. Then the, the Davises, 
that bought her from the Groomsteads sold her to a Mr. Hall. And Mr. Hall brought her to Texas from Virginia. And they must have come down to Mississippi because she says she remembers the band playing and the people singing. This is your father's mother? My father's mother. Okay. Jeff Davis is our president, and Lincoln is a fool. Jeff Davis rides a big white horse, and Lincoln rides a mule. She remembered that. And then after she came to Texas, and I don't know how old she was then, but at the age of 16, she was freed in Texas. And, and uh, that last owner was a Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall, no, it wasn't the last owner. He was the, it was Mr. Hall who bought her from the Virginians and brought her to Texas, but then he sold her to his nephew, and she was freed uh, from Billy Hall. And, and even after freedom, the Halls would come to see her. And uh, she called them her folks, and they called her uh, Aunt Rosie. Jim Crow, the government-enforced system of anti-black discrimination, was part of life for Dorothy and Frank. And again, this is part of the backstory of Frank's death. It cannot be separated from whatever happened to him in that garage. If he was murdered, then it was because of his work fighting against Jim Crow, fighting for racial equality. And if he killed himself, you can't ignore the daily injustices that he suffered and he watched his loved ones suffer under American white supremacy. I think those of us who called ourselves black leaders, I know I'm guilty. I didn't, I was not aware. I was so accepting of it that I was not even aware that it shouldn't really be this way that uh, a change can be made. There's something better that can be done. I don't think that ever really soaked in. Even being married to the man you were married to? Well, well he helped to open my eyes after he became so active. But until then, I, I didn't, didn't he, I was going to tell my niece, don't bother with that. You know, it's just, this is the way it is. And I guess after 40 or 45 years of living under that, you, as I look back now, it's strange. That, that it didn't occur to me. And when I think of all the things when we were kids, when we got ready to get on the train, uh, my parents would go early to get the tickets because they knew the person at the window was going to wait on all the white people first. And it, I remember that, but it, it was a way of life. Uh, I do remember when I was coming home to my father's funeral in 52, when we crossed the line from New Mexico into Texas, the conductor came through and told me and my sister to move. And we moved, and we went in this next counter, and people had been eating, and the seats were greasy and whatnot. And I got up and came back to where we were. And he said something, and I said, well, our, our uh, trip originated in a, in a non-segregated state, and we have a right not to change. And my sister said to me, I, I don't want to get put in jail. I want to go to Pop's funeral. I said, honey, don't worry. I said, when we get to Houston, it'll be every every representative of the NAACP and everybody else. If he tries to do anything to us, so naturally nobody bothered us. But I'm, I think it was probably about that time that I began to realize that uh, I don't just have to uh, sit back here. It, and, and I was quite a mature woman. When was that? That was in 1952 and 52. But see, the laws about interstate travel had passed before then. If your, if your trip originated in a, in a non-segregated state, 
you were supposed to ride and 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 not to change coaches when you came to a segregated state. I don't know whether the conductor didn't know it or just saw some black folks sitting up there and was gonna move us. I don't know, but anyway, we moved, but we went back, and and not, nothing happened. Do you remember when you first had the sense that this wasn't just your husband trying to do justice to people, but a movement? Uh, when I first heard anything about the students sitting in, my niece was in school at Southern in uh, Baton Rouge, and my first inc inclination was to write her a letter and tell her, don't have anything to do with this. And to this day, I'm so glad I did not write that letter. She probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Why, why would you have written such a letter? Because I felt that well, we're not going to get anywhere with it and we'll just be a lot of trouble. That was the climate, that was the, the NAACP had been working from 1909, blacks were still being lynched and everything was still, maybe not as many lynchings as we had had earlier, but everything was still segregated. I mean, you know, drinking different uh, drinking fountains and, and, and the, the, the uh, supplies for school was just, there was no such thing as equality. Black teachers had a low salary, short school term. The blacks were always on the lower end of everything, and I guess I had, and I had grown up with that. And I guess uh, I thought, well, any, any efforts to have it otherwise would be futile. So why waste your time and perhaps get sent out of school and classified as a troublemaker? I guess that was what I was thinking. But Frank J. Robinson wasn't thinking like that. He was looking for ways to improve the lives of black citizens of Palestine. And he saw up close the indifference of the white community leaders to those black citizens. Frank was on the group to plan for the county fair, and there wasn't a restroom for black women. And he asked about it, and the chairman said, let them go to the woods, that's what they're used to. And, and we didn't get a, a restroom that year. They, there definitely was segregation, and there were those who meant to keep it that way. But Dorothy said the worst of the anti-black action in the community came during election time, and violence was used to keep black citizens from the right to vote. But there was an instance when the blacks were beaten away from the polls here, uh, actually fiscally beaten away from the polls. People went down, it was something about a, a mayoral race, and some, the blacks were supporting somebody that he was a friend to the blacks. I have a friend down here whose parents were actually beaten. The mother was too, and I think she was put in jail. That was in the 20s, since I have been here the 30s up to now. I don't know of anything like that. That doesn't mean that people didn't make sure that blacks were not elected. If you remember, I said when Frank ran for the school board, it was almost close to closing time, and he had carried the city. Somebody called. Mount Alba, which is in this district, but it's out in the rural, and told those people, if you don't get to the polls, we're going to have a nigger on the school board. They uh, got more people to the polls the last hour or so. So that shows that there was definite effort to make sure that he, when Frank ran for the city council, it was feared that he was going to really win. So they had a meeting and said, well, look like he's going to win. What can we do? And somebody, they sent to the, the opposition sent to Dallas and got somebody who had great strategy in politics. And he said, get another nigger to run against him. And they found another nigger who ran against him. And then what happened, the votes were divided and a white guy got on the, on the council. So there have been all of these undercover things 
to, to start the progress of, and a lot of times they were successful. Dorothy said Frank recognized that progress could only be won through winning elections, which is why he fought so hard to register voters, organize and educate candidates, and then of course sue the county and the federal courts for fair elections. And that was one thing Frank was very strong about. The, your, you say you're, you'd say all men are created equal. You're only equal at the polls. That's the only time you're equal. And if you don't get up and use that, that privilege, then you, you, you certainly are destroying any possibility of being equal. When you, that was one of his theories. After Frank's death, Dorothy struggled with the constant reminders of her lost husband and also strongly suspecting that she was living in a community that had something to do with his death. For years, she wrote letters to Texas U.S. Senator Lloyd Benson and other high-ranking officials asking them to reopen the investigation and to finally settle that Frank did not kill himself. But finally, at the time of these interviews... 1994 and 1995, she was done. I don't, I don't feel up to opening it again, though. It's, uh, I just have to live over it all over again. And it's kind of like a, if a scab gets over a sword, you kind of leave it there. You keep picking at it and it gets worse. Uh, I, I, would, I would cooperate with it if, if somebody else decided to run with it, but I don't want to handle it. I, I really don't. I, I don't. I don't. I just don't think I could. It would be too painful. That, that, that's that's really what I'm trying to say. But just to go through all of that again. But, uh, but uh, somebody knows the truth, and it's somebody. There's somebody's that I see quite often. I'm sure. And. Uh, do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Really. Uh, I can shut some things out of my mind. And I, I'm, I'm a, I'll tell you what I think about more than anything else. I wonder what were Frank's last thoughts when he got out there and that, because evidently they made him go in the garage, his eyeglasses were left in the house. And uh, I just would, I imagine he wondered, you know, about dear, that was what he called me, Dorothy Deal. And I just would if I if I would like to know his last thoughts, and that of course I'll never know. So it's no point in thinking about <laughs> no point in thinking about that. But so far as uh, to me, he he still lives in 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 the result of of the work that he's done. Frank's work does still live on. Robinson v. Anderson County, the lawsuit that found race-based gerrymandering at the county level unconstitutional, this is still good case law. But with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and the weakening of voting rights by the current U.S. Supreme Court, it's anyone's guess what the future holds for equal access to the polls in America. And one has to wonder, what would Frank J. Robinson be doing about that? My bet is that he would be organizing and talking to people and convincing them to get out and vote. Meet the people of Texas at the point of their greatest need. And Frank would say that so often. The greatest need of Palestine is the, is the vote. 
That's it for this episode of The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson. I'm David Martin Davies. I'm going to take some time off for the holidays. We'll be back in 2023 with a new episode looking at the dark history of Palestine, Texas. If you ask every white person in Palestine, do you have a racial problem? They'll say no. Everybody gets along here. We don't have a problem. If you talk to black people, you get a different answer. And also, we'll be digging deeper into the facts behind the death of Frank J. Robinson. Thanks for listening. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering a world-renowned education at one of the lowest tuition rates in the state of Texas. Up to 98% of students receive financial aid. Application at becomeajaguar.com.